We'll take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to kind of pick up where we were last week. <coughs> last week we were looking at where Jesus said, if your righteousness does not exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. <coughs> well, that prompts the question, what was the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees? What about the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees was there that was not pleasing to God, that was not good enough? Now, last week we looked at <coughs> the history kind of of the Pharisees and how they got to be Pharisees and how all of that kind of evolved. <coughs> but you remember that the, the Pharisees were passionate about being faithful to God, but in their human human efforts, they became misguided. And I guess one of the things that has so settled in my own heart that I want to settle in yours is how easy it is for that to happen to any of us. Uh, in our zeal and in our effort, you know, unless we keep focus on God's word and on God's heart, how easy it is to do that. So we can apply a lot of this to ourselves because Pharisaic tendencies are very common in Christianity today. Shake your head, yes. And so those of us who are the most passionate about faithfully following God are the most vulnerable to the same errors. Because when you have this passion for God and you think, I want to do this for him, and then you think, oh, I can do a little bit more, or I can do a little bit more, and the next thing that happens is you're expecting everybody else to do what you're doing, and then you're off of the biblical trail. And so that's kind of what happened. But <clears throat> one of the things that's really been on my heart is I realize in my own life how I have not really understood grace. Uh, not just the fact of grace, but the measureless grace <clears throat> that God has poured out on all of us. So that the heart of the real gospel and what you're going to see Jesus um, pretty much you know, promoting more than anything else is grace and intimacy with the Lord. And what does that look like? What does that mean? And so Jesus confronted the Pharisees over and over and over again. And so Jesus showed us in his life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, read it. He showed us in his life what real Christianity is intended to be, what it looks like. And so we always, always need to be reading the Gospels for the purpose of learning how to live like Jesus. What did he do? What did he think? What did he say? How did he respond? So let's see if we can paint a little summary picture here of what the Pharisees' thinking was like. Uh, when we think of the Pharisees, we usually think that they were self-righteous, they were hypocritical, they were, and judgmental, they were. So those are the kind of the big three that if you start reading about Pharisees, they're going to refer to those three things in the big three. Hypocrisy, judgmentalism, and self-righteous pride. And so we look at them and we think, well, <clears throat> I'm not as judgmental as the Pharisees. But I'm somewhat judgmental. I'm not as hypocritical as the Pharisees, but yeah. I'm hypocritical sometimes. I'm not judgmental like the Pharisees, but 
I'm somewhat judgmental. So what begins to happen here is that the Lord begins to shine this searchlight in our hearts, you know, because we want to say, well, look at them. They were awful. Well, yeah, I do it too, but I'm not as bad as they were, right? And we tend to think like that. So the Pharisees, though, those were the big three, but they were also caught up in some less obvious things. And I think these are the tricky things. These are the slippery places. These are the hard things. Uh, last week we saw that the Pharisees added man-made rules to the commands of God. <coughs> they added man-made rules to the commands of God. There's what God said, but then there's what they thought you ought to do was a little bit more than that. And then they used approval and disapproval to keep people in line. Think about that one. They used approval and disapproval, peer pressure, to keep people in line with what they thought they ought to do. And this prevented people from developing spiritual discernment for themselves. Then they ended up judging God's own son, Jesus Christ himself, as a false teacher because he didn't line up with their ideas. He didn't line up with their man-made system of teaching. Then they placed great emphasis on performance and human effort. <coughs> they completely missed the overall biblical emphasis on relationships. Relationship with God and relationship with one another. And this one makes my heart beat hard. They lifted man-made traditions above scriptures. They lifted man-made traditions above scriptures. How inclined we are, how easy it is to do that. And so they resisted change in any form. How many times do we hear or do we say, but we've always done it that way. I mean, that's the way you do it. Instead of holding something up before the Lord and asking him what he thinks about it. Um, when we talk about man-made traditions, I think another huge influence probably for them and for us today is the whole issue of culture. Trying to be relevant to the culture around us. And so, so many times when we try to do that, we wind up compromising God's word because we think that's what makes us relevant they assumed that stricter is better sometimes we you know stricter is stricter is better or bigger is always better they craved the approval of their spiritual peers and feared the disapproval of their spiritual peers what happens to us if we in this class will think oh they don't approve of me well, probably quit coming, right? But they, they were desperate for pats on the back from their group. They measured spirituality by what others could see. What do you see on the outside? They relied on human ability and performance to accomplish spiritual transformation. You know, 
We're guilty of that. We're guilty of manufacturing um, enthusiasm and excitement because we want our revival and we want to make it happen instead of just, we're guilty. All of this is fair cycle. So we could go, we could go on and on and on. And so, you know, guess what the Lord's put on my heart? And we may have to go into this when we get finished with this study about grace. What is grace? What, what does God do when he gives us grace? How immeasurable. You begin to think about God's grace forgiving all of the sins of all of the world for all time. That is immeasurable grace. That is measureless grace. So I go over this because in this section that we're about to study, the Lord makes some critical statements. The concept behind the scriptures, behind this passage, is the attitude behind the act. Now, if you wanted to give a title to this passage, this section of scripture, you could call it that. The attitude behind the act. Now, the Pharisees and most of us uh, evaluate our lives and other people's lives based on what we see based on external appearance and I'm go not gonna uh, let me just read you first um, Samuel chapter 16 and verse 7 I've got several here and I'm gonna read a couple of them um, and then I'll give you the rest of them so that you can look at later first Samuel chapter 16 and verse 7 these are Old Testament um, appearances, things of, about the heart. 1 Samuel 16, 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as a man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart so if you want to spend some time on this this afternoon the others are john 7 24 john 7 24 and then in first corinthians 10 and write down the verse but paul says do you look on things after the outward appearance and we kind of do i mean that's of course all we know it's all we see because we can't read a man's heart but these people were putting all kinds of emphasis on that so mankind is basically satisfied with externals. Well, if it looks like it, looks like a duck, must be a duck, quacks like a duck, right? So we kind of think like that. But God is not so concerned with the outside as he is with the inside. And that is the basis for Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 48. The whole rest of this chapter. So when we're here, that's what Jesus is dealing with. He's dealing with the heart and so God is trying to teach the Jews Jesus is and so he, he starts off the the underlying premise is that what we are on the inside is what God is concerned with regardless of what we look like on the outside what are we on the inside and I guess you kind of know what it is but um you know I grew up in a culture where if you saw someone male or female with just wild raging hair and tattoos all over their body you just kind of wanted to just back off right but how many of you with me have learned that some of those are the most precious christians and so what god is looking at is what 
He said, you be careful about making judgments based on outward appearance. And so that's what he's at after. And so look right here in Matthew 5 and verse 20. Jesus says, for I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. So the scribes and Pharisees had a righteousness that was external. It's just what people could see. And they would walk down the street in their robes wearing their phylacteries and, and uh, they would make, it, make sure that everyone saw them praying. So it's all about external. And so Jesus is saying, you must have a righteousness that exceeds the external. You must have a righteousness that is internal because God is concerned about what we really are, not what we appear to be. What's really in that heart. So the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees was an external uh, ceremonial, ritualistic, hypocritical legalism. That's what it was. Want me to say that again? It was a ceremonial, external, ritualistic, hypocritical legalism. That's what it was. Now, we're going got, to got to go back to the Old Testament for a minute. So go with me to 1 Kings in chapter 8. <coughs> I should have written these down. 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse 39. Then hear thou in heaven thy dwelling place and forgive us, forgive and act and render to each according to all his ways whose heart thou knowest for thou alone dost know the hearts of all of the sons of men. It's again in 1 Chronicles. 1 Chronicles chapter 28 and verse 9. As for you, my son Solomon, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and a willing mind for the Lord searches all hearts and understands every intent of the thoughts if you seek him he will let you find him but if you forsake him he will reject you forever so what I want you to see is the Old Testament is full of the teaching that God is after your heart he's looking at your heart the heart is the important thing second uh, chronicles chapter 16 second chronicles chapter 16 and verse 9 For the eyes of the Lord, I love this verse. For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. You love that? The eyes of the Lord roam to and fro throughout the whole earth seeking to show himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are his. I haven't got time to chase a rabbit, but i got to tell you this. You know, the New Testament says that the enemy roams to and fro throughout the whole earth, seeking whom he may devour. So here you've got God's eyes, 
and the enemy's eyes roaming the whole earth. Satan's trying to catch you to eat you alive. And God's looking for those whose hearts are his so that he can show himself strong in their behalf. Real quick, go all the way to Revelation. Revelation chapter 2 and verse 23. God is speaking. He says, and I will kill her children with pestilence and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. So the whole thing is God searching the heart. Old Testament, New Testament, anywhere in between. God is searching the heart. So the standard that God sets is the standard of the heart. And God is concerned with external behavior only as it is the outgrowth of internal righteousness. Whatever our behavior is on the outside, it's got to start with the righteousness that's inside. Your heart is going to reveal itself. And so what is a hypocrite? These, these Pharisees were putting on spiritual dramas when their hearts were not connected. And so God is looking for that outward behavior that originates in a righteous heart. These verses call us to examine our hearts repeatedly, to constantly hold our hearts before the Lord. Jesus is going on to describe the citizens of his kingdom. And I'm spending time on this because I want this in your mind when we look at these next verses. He is describing the citizens of the kingdom here. He has given us the nature of the kingdom when he gave us the Beatitudes. And so... These are a standard of excellence that external religion cannot touch. Because what happens when you're poor in spirit, where is that? In your heart. When you mourn over your sin, where is that? In your heart. When you're meek, where is that? In your heart. So if we go through those Beatitudes, then what we're going to see is it's all heart stuff. And so... External religion cannot approach that. So the Pharisees were not poor in spirit. The Pharisees weren't mourning over sin. The Pharisees weren't merciful and peacemakers. Why? Because of their hearts. Because of their hearts. They had none of the real qualities of a citizen of a kingdom of heaven that Jesus just described in those first 12 verses. And so what did he say? Verse 20. If your righteousness does not exceed that, then you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Who will enter the kingdom of heaven? Blessed are those who are poor in spirit for what? Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So somehow the Pharisees missed that because they were so satisfied with themselves and their own rules. And so... Jesus steps up to the plate here and he shows how people who live by these principles relate to Old Testament law. Now, he explains it to these Jews who had external religion. Everything was on the outside. It's what they'd been taught. So they so totally leaned on the laws of Judaism that the Lord has to show them 
how this relates to their system of belief. And so what he's teaching here is corrective, you know, for the Pharisees and the Jews. So look at verse 20. What it basically says, God's standard is higher than yours. That's what he's telling them. God's standard is higher than yours. Your righteous standard is unacceptable to God. And so they thought, now here, here's where it gets touchy for us. They thought they were obeying the law of God. They thought they were doing good. That's what Jesus is saying, the, the word of God is telling us later when he says the day's going to come when men are going to call good evil and evil good. Do you ever see that going on? So the Judaism in Jesus' day was far, far, far from what the Old Testament said because they had messed with it. So in verse 17, look what Jesus said there in verse 17. He says, don't think I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I didn't come to abolish, but to fulfill. <clears throat> so what Jesus is saying to them is what you have accepted for yourselves is not God's standard. It's not it. So he goes on then and through Matthew 5, 6, and 7. He keeps on going to explain God's law, which was the Old Testament, and how it relates to people. And so he says to them, I'm not setting aside God's law. I'm setting it back in its primary place. I'm about to tell you what it really says. So look real quick right here in Matthew 5. Jesus is going to give six specific illustrations. The first one is in verse 21. You have heard, you have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you. That everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever shall say to his brother Raka shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever shall say you fool shall be guilty enough to go into fiery hell. Verse 23. If therefore you are presenting your offering to the altar. I'm sorry I need to skip down. Skip down to verse 27. We'll go back through this another day. But he says verse 27. You have heard it said. You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you. Do not lust. Everyone who looks on a woman to lust for her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. Verse 31. And you've heard it said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the cause of unchastity, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Verse 33. Again, you have heard that the ancients were told you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God. And then down in verse um, 38, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist him who is evil, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also. And then verse 43, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies. 
and pray for those who persecute you. Did you see a pattern? You've heard. You've been told. But I'm telling you. And so he's telling them that their standard for holiness is too low. So he says, you worry about murder, but God looks at the heart and says, hate is the same thing. You're dealing with the action. God is looking at the heart. So we cannot justify ourselves on the basis of externals, on what's going on on the outside. Jesus is saying thoughts are just as important as deeds. Matthew, Matthew chapter 23, Jesus was speaking to the Pharisees and he said, you are whitewashed sepulchers. What's he saying? He says, you are whitewashed like a tomb full of dead men's bones. So all through here, Jesus is challenging them. They didn't care about their thoughts and attitudes. They just cared about what people could see what they were doing on the outside you know God never says you are a Christian saved by grace so go to whatever you want God never says that he is saying you are a child of the king a kingdom citizen a kingdom of priests here is God's standard for you and so that's what Jesus then begins to lay down and so what happens when we start looking at God's standards is you think oh my goodness I need grace I need mercy Martin Lloyd-Jones gives an illustration that kind of jolts my heart and I'll hurry and finish with this in the days of the reformation uh, Martin Luther, you know the story, uh, challenged the, the Catholic Church. Before the Reformation really, really hit, the scriptures were not translated into English. Now there's a lot to think about here, so look at me. They were not translated into English. They had, did not have scriptures in the language of the people. So when you went to Catholic Mass before the Reformation, reformation everything was in latin you don't know what they said everything was in latin the what the priest read was in latin nobody understood it nobody could read it so the pre the people would simply believe whatever the priest said to the told them it said whatever the priest said they took that so the reformation one of the great things about the reformation is that it gave the bible to the people it put in the people's hands a Bible they could read. So it was translated into English. And so when they began to read the Bible for themselves, they began to see, whoa, wait a minute. Now compare that to when Israel went to Babylon. When Israel had to go to Babylon, they were there for 70 years will understand that during that 70 years they were in ba Babylon, they lost the Hebrew language. They stopped speaking Hebrew. They no longer could translate Hebrew. They didn't, they didn't know Hebrew. They started speaking Aramaic. And so they started having to do what the Catholics had to do before 
the Reformation because in Jesus' day, the Jewish people were unfamiliar with Hebrew. Like the Catholics were unfamiliar with Latin. And so the rabbis would read in Hebrew and they would interpret it for you and they would tell you what it said. And so they began to build up a system that was based on their opinion and the ignorance of the people. What were the people? The people were wanting to please God and all they had was what they were being told. And so that's what created this monstrosity and so what they had then is what became called the oral traditions you know about oral traditions well my mama said you know my grandmama said and so they've got they didn't have the written word of god what they had was oral traditions that were full of deletions and additions and embellishments and that's all they knew and so jesus says that's what you've been hearing. And that's not God's law. You have heard it said, blah, 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 blah. But I say to you. And who is Jesus? God himself. He says, I'm going to tell you what this really says. So just like in the Reformation, same thing. Now here's what the bee is in my bonnet today. How many Bibles are available to people in the world today written in their own language? More than I can count. How many people are there that never read them, but just turn on the TV or go hear a preacher and just believe whatever they tell them is so? It's the same thing. It's the same thing. How, and again, oh my goodness, off the charts, the value of having a Bible we can read ourselves. I wonder how many, if we counted how many Bibles all of us collectively have got in our houses, how many do you reckon we'd come up with? 100? 250? And so that's what Jesus is addressing. He says, this is God's word to you. This is it. So it's my job to what? Absorb it. He says, this is bread. This is life for you. God's word is life. And so the value that we have in a Bible that we can read, hold, take home. There have been some fascinating videos on social media through the years of people receiving shipments of Bibles people in America would send them and it would be their first Bible for the first time in their own language and they would weep and hold it like a treasure. What do we do? What do we do? We read God's word that he has given to us and our focus must always be, Lord, show me my heart the way you see it. Search my heart. Know my thoughts. Try me and see if there be any wicked way in me. And lead me into way everlasting. And we get into this book and he will make it come alive. And we're going to read it and meditate on it. Meditate is like chewing cud, like a cow chewing cud. It's just going to come up and go back, come up and go back. It's going to come around again, come around again. And it's going to change us. God's word. Let's pray. Father, would you speak to our hearts 
what you want us to hear. Let it take root and let us treasure this vessel that you have given to us in your word, knowing that these people didn't have anything but the Old Testament. We've got the whole book. Help us to receive it and apply it and change us that we might be more like Jesus. Thank you for this time. Bless us indeed. In Jesus' name, amen.